0: Candid Climate Conversations with Abheed Palla. Hello and welcome to Candid Climate Conversations with Abhid, a series of podcasts on climate change, part of the Ramphal Dialogues. I'm your host, Abhir, and today I'm delighted to have with me Professor Pankaj Jain, with whom I will be talking about climate change. Professor Pankaj Jain is an internationally recognized academic leader in sustainability, Jain studies, film studies, and diaspora studies. He's the head of the Department of Humanities and Languages and the chair of the India Center at Flame University. Dr. Jain is widely quoted in various American and India media outlets. In July 2020, the New York Times interviewed him, and in 2019, Morgan Freeman interviewed him for the National Geographic series, The Story of God. He's a recipient of the Fulbright Nehru Fellowship for Environmental Leadership, as well as the Wenner-Ren Grant, amongst many other grants. It's wonderful to have you with us. Sir. Thank you. abir nice to be here with you. So I'm just going to dive right in. I was very curious about your personal journey, because you went from studying computer science in college, and now you're a professor of not just languages, but also religion. And now in recent times, even an advocate for sustainability. Tell us a bit about what motivated you to undertake this journey, how you channeled your interests into becoming Career Options. Pretty early on, you started working with an organization called Green Faith in the U.S. And you also got your Fulbright Scholarship for Environmental Leadership. So how did all these interests come together and bring you to where you are today?
1: Yeah, I grew up in a very small town called Bali in Rajasthan, and I always was interested in traditional practices. Through my mother, of course, we all got some hints of, you know, how a neem datun can be used for toothbrush and so on. But being a son of my father, who is an engineer, I also had to follow his footsteps and became an engineer as well in computer science. That time, computer science was very new. So I first did what almost every male child does in India. But as I left for US, I really started missing my heritage, my cultural background, which was always my passion, the Indian classical music and philosophical texts and all. So that started my journey to explore my own heritage. As soon as I reached in the US, I took it really seriously, my heritage, and completely left IT career after a couple of years and became a full-time student at Columbia University and doing my master's in religion. And then after that, I applied for PhD. And while taking PhD courses at the University of Iowa, I started looking for a topic that should be relevant to contemporary issues. You know, I could have taken a manuscript and I could have translated from Sanskrit to English or whatever, practice to English or whatever. But then I thought that let's take an issue that is beyond party lines. It's not a left or right issue, I think. It's not an Indian or American issue. It's a global issue. It's an issue of our times. It's a crisis now of our times. I think all sides should be, if not already, on the board to try to solve this problem. So that became my PhD topic. I did take a PhD course and then from there saw that there are references made for the community in one of the texts on the environmental issues. But there was no proper study of the entire history of the Vishnu community, what all they've been doing for environmental reasons and so on, causes for centuries. So that was one community that I studied for my PhD research, then the Swadhyay community and the Beel community, which I call as tribal community in Rajasthan, Gujarat, Pradesh border. So that became my PhD thesis and that became my first book. So as I was completing my PhD, I was working, you know, PhD was from the University of Iowa, but I was doing my dissertation work in New Jersey where my family also was there at the time. Green Faith was just launched by Reverend Fletcher Harper. It's an interfaith movement to unite all the different religious communities. So even religious people are now looking for the ways to unite the communities that can take this issue of climate change. Pope Francis is a great example, as you know very well. So Green Faith was looking for a scholar, for a speaker, who can connect Indian traditional issues with environmental issues. So my research being on Hinduism and Jainism and Buddhism, I was chosen as their scholar-in-residence. So with their invitation, I wrote one of the first... Such article column on widely published on, on various websites called as 10 Key Hindu Environmental Teachings, and it is on Huffington Post, some many, many other websites also, Hinduism Today magazine, and, and many others. So that was, uh, we're talking 2007. So my journey into environmental issues is starting from 2005, more than 15 years ago. And my PhD was in 2008 and then working with Green Faith. And then I have been teaching these topics in the Dallas area for a long time, for almost a decade. And now I'm back in India. I'm at Flame University where I'm trying to do similar work here.
0: Absolutely. So that's really interesting. You know, you mentioned your first book, was based on these tribal communities. I think you mentioned the Bishnoi community. Just for our listeners, could you tell us a little bit more about who these communities really are, where they're based, and whether they're examples or what are just some of their practices which make them a great example, not just for Indians but for people around mm-hmm. the world in terms of sustainability practices.
1: America, this this word. When I taught these courses in my at the University of North Texas where I was associate professor, every time I introduced the word tree hugger, it would generate a chuckle among my students. So tree hugger is kind of a joke in the US because they are sort of crazy people and you know running around for environmental issues but they have no touch with the reality or whatever. But this word tree hugger actually came into our language into English from Chipko movement. Chipko means tree hugging, right? So Chipko movement saved thousands of trees in the Himalayan regions. But Chipko movement apparently took that inspiration to hug the trees from a Bishnoi woman in the early 18th century who Amrita Devi who and more than 363 Bishnoi men, women and children, they literally hugged their Khejari tree as the soldiers from Jodhpur came to cut the trees. And that's how they saved hundreds of trees in their village in uh, Pali Jodhpur area, where actually I am also from that region. That became my first community that I researched. Vishnu community is also known uh, was in the news when the early 90s when Salman Khan was shooting for this film called hum Saath Saath Hain so Salman Khan Saif Ali Khan Tabu and Neelam they all took some break time and they are, went out for doing some hunting expedition in the pali Wizar- uh, area and as they shot a black buck Vishnu people jumped to the spot and caught Salman Khan and he's still fighting this lawsuit you know over de- decades now yeah, that's how Vishnu community came into the news but Salman Khan is a very recent example they've been doing these things for centuries they have caught many other herd hunters, poachers. Anytime uh, anybody tries to hunt their flora and fauna, deer, bucks, black bucks, or even Kejani tree. They are the first to save their, their flora and fauna because the ecology is so fragile in Rajasthani desert villages. Communities like Vishnuis are at the forefront mm-hmm. of saving their you know, very fragile natural system. So that's my first community. The Swadhyay community is also spread across Western India, Gujarat, Maharashtra, and Rajasthan. And they have constructed new sacred groves in mm-hmm. Gujarat especially, where every district now has a new sacred grove where people come together and reveal these trees and plants and whatever produce that comes out of these plants and trees is is treated like divine prasad Mm -hmm. right and so that prasad is distributed among the villagers not as a charity but as a prasad from nature we know that sacred groves are spread across the world. But those are all very ancient sacred groves. What Swadhyay Parivar has done is constructed new sacred groves, new sacred gardens, sacred divine forests, where this is not done to save the biodiversity or to fight the climate change. These are the experiments, as they call them, experiments to connect humans with reverence and gratitude towards nature and towards God. So it's basically, or Bhagwan. it's basically to express their gratitude towards Bhagawan, to practice their dharma. Similarly, in the real villages, where when I went in Panfoda, Dungarpur, Southern Rajasthan area, wherever there are any small shrines, right? mm-hmm. and then around the shrines, all those forest patches are still saved, still intact. Because of the presence of these small shrines, forest patches are saved. Mm-hmm. So again, the idea is, because of the sacred beliefs and rituals and traditional practices, these patches of forests are saved, flora and fauna is saved by Vishnuis, and new environmental resources are being generated by Shwadhyaya in the name of spirituality, not in the name of fighting the climate change yes. so this is what we call as dharmic ecology this is not deep ecology this mm-hmm. is not shallow ecology this is not utilitarian ecology mm-hmm. but this is dharmic ecology Practice okay. of Dharma and saving the ecology as a
0: byproduct. Yeah, because no, I think that's very interesting. I mean, an environmentalist myself, I was, of course, very familiar with the Chipko movement, and I think it's got international recognition as well. But this sort of backstory that you shared with us is really interesting, not something that I'd heard of previously. But pushing a bit further, building on exactly this theme, as you yourself just said, the intersectionality of religion and sustainability is a little known field. And one occasionally tends to come across a news feature every now and then on certain tribal practices and maybe a good versus bad focus where urbanization is threatening those said practices. But there's very little focus on how religious aspects drive practitioners of those religions towards sustainability. So it would be interesting if you could share your thoughts on that.
1: Yes. So as I already mentioned, right, these three communities are all inspired by their dharmic traditions, their spiritual traditions. Their focus is not the environment, but focus is on practicing their dharma, following their guru's teachings, whatever. So Guru Jambeshwar, the founder of Vishnu community in 15th century. Mm-hmm. He laid down 29 rules that became the word for Vishnoyi. Vishnoyi 29. Vish is 20, no, you Those 29 rules, they cover spirituality, hygiene, uh, environmentalism, uh, cleanliness, morality, Mm -hmm. spirituality. All of these things are intertwined. To take shower every day is one of the rules. To not cut green trees is another rule. Mm -hmm. To not eat meat is another rule. So, vegetarianism, saving the trees is all part of Vishnoyi dharma so that's for five centuries they have been doing these things
0: so that's interesting because nowadays when we're seeing veganism and vegetarianism Mm -hmm. coming up as schools of thought within Mm -hmm. climate action movement recently we had COP26 and there was so much criticism about how world leaders on one hand were arguing about climate change but on the other hand the menus are full of meat so that's definitely an interesting point that you make but you know your research interest also focuses on languages and in my limited knowledge of languages, I've always found it interesting to have comparisons or conversely similarities between certain languages and certain themes which are there because it said that all languages come from a mother tongue or a mother root there. So, do you think that just like religion, as you said, has been driving the Bishnoi community for so many years, do you think there are also interlinkages with language?
1: Yes, certainly. For example, if you notice my first book's title is not religion and ecology, it's dharma and ecology because I really wanted to bring in the idea of Hermannia. here. Mm-hmm. Dharma, root, come, dharma is the word in Sanskrit, as you know, dharma, but not just in Sanskrit, but all Indian languages have this word dharma also. I actually did a survey with Tamil-speaking people, Malayan-speaking people, Telugu, Marathi, Bengali, Assamese. all regional languages have this term dharma. Root word for dharma is dhri. Dhri means to sustain. Now, we talk about sustainability and sustenance. Dharma is also about sustaining. So, what is dharma sustaining? Dharma sustains the world, the worldly affairs and the cosmic affairs. Mm-hmm. It's all about sustaining the world, sustaining the planet. That is, what is Sustainability all about? That is why I really wanted to highlight dharma in my title of the book, and that's my central thesis of the book is that Dharma has this inherent ideas of sustainability. Mm-hmm. Dharma replaces even earlier notion of rhythm in Rigveda. Mm-hmm. The word uses rhythm. Cosmic rhythm was what was called as rhythm in the Rigveda. Okay. Within the later parts of Rigveda, rhythm is replaced by dharma in the 90th Purushuttta in Rigveda. So rhythm and dharma are now synonymous. Mm-hmm. What was rhythm before cosmic rhythm becomes dharma in the later part of the Rigveda, which again means to sustain the whole cosmos. That yeah. is what sustainability is all about. So language does play a very important role. Similarly, other words such as karma and uh, punarjan, all these notions that we have in Sanskrit and other Indian languages can all be linked with environmental issues, as I've shown in my article 10 key environmental teaching which is available on Huffington Post and other resources.
0: Mm-hmm, right. And Dr. Jain, I was also reading your article in Times of India, and you had also made certain linkages or rather, I would say you'd used examples from the Mahabharata and uh, the Ramayana or some other similar text, if I'm not wrong, and found it really interesting Mm -hmm. how you were comparing texts, which are hundreds of years old, to, well, I wouldn't call them practices, but certainly contemporary considerations in -hmm. terms of climate action. So it, it would be great if you could share some of those, and also is your new book really about that, or what does your new book focus on?
1: I published two books on environmental issues. First mm-hmm. was the result of my PhD dissertation with Vishnois and Swadhyais and Bheel communities of Rajasthan, Gujarat areas. The second book came out of my Fulbright research. Mm-hmm. The research for that book led me to Uttarakhand, mm-hmm. where I worked with an NGO called HESCO, Himalayan Environmental Study and Conservation Organization. And the second community that I chose for my second book is a Sikh community in Sultanpur, where Guru Nanak attained his enlightenment. So when Guru Nanak attained his enlightenment, right there, that river itself was extremely polluted. But a Sikh guru, Baba Sichewal, he single-handedly started cleaning that river in the name of reverence for his guru, Guru Nanak. Mm -hmm. And as he started cleaning the river, called Kali Bayanid, the river itself was called Black River. It was so polluted. And looking at the guru, his followers also jumped into the river, literally, and started cleaning the river. So that effort, you know, again inspired by spirituality, Sikhism in this case, and environmental issues, we got the result of a very clean river. When I went to meet Baba Sichewal, he himself invited me to sit with him in the boat and he mm-hmm. drove that his, his boat across the river. Now, now no longer Kali, it's very clean river now. So that's the two communities that I look for in my second book.
0: So, I mean, I wish we had similar such babas alongside the Ganga because <laughs> yes. if, if there was a similar such movement over there, so the country would really benefit from it and the world at large, all that yeah. water is also going down into the oceans. So, but that's interesting, you know, because i was comparing the examples you used in that article to this and it's not just there but as we can see you know just in in modern times as well i think there is this power this capacity that religion has to drive people towards sustainability and i think it's Interesting because we conventionally look towards leaders like Greta Thunberg or Al Gore. But at the end of the day, we also have to think about the fact that, I mean, in India, it's Hinduism, Islam. In the U.S., it's a lot of Christianity. But everywhere, one thing that ties people together is their interest and in their their faith. So I think looking at how religions can drive people towards sustainability is, you yourself said, a very understudied and underappreciated Fact, Which we can look at in more detail. Mm -hmm. And towards that same point, I was also reading that you chair the India Center at Flame. So as an advocate for sustainability myself, I've been very inspired by traditional Indian practices, which are extremely environmentally friendly. You know, you began by mentioning the Datun, which is a name stick. And today as an environmentalist, you know, I find myself being asked this question very often by fellow students, by school students who I give workshops to. And (laughs) the most common question is, what can we do sitting at home for the environment? And I tell them that Um, it's not about doing everything right. It's about doing a few things right and then increasing mm -hmm. it one by one. Because we don't need a thousand environmentalists living a perfectly sustainable lifestyle, but we need millions of environmentalists living an imperfect perfectly sustainable lifestyle yes. and in that sense i tell them that switch from a shower to a bucket bath switch from plastic yeah. toothbrushes to bamboo toothbrushes but i one day i had this young class six seven student who stood up and said why even bamboo toothbrushes the bristles may have plastic so why not use datuns? because my grandmother told me we <coughs> used to yes. use clothes. So, do you know of any other such similar practices? I mean, now the datun and bamboo toothbrush example is mm-hmm. becoming more common, but were mm-hmm. there any other such practices which you've come across either while yes, studying yes. or which you know of? Yes, um, yes. Which promote such practices? Yes, yes. yes.
1: Abheer, uh, actually, a few years back, for five or six years, nonstop, National Geographic magazine in the US mm-hmm. did a survey of green, which they called as Green okay. Index of World Economies. Mm-hmm. So, they measured the carbon footprint of India, China, Brazil, Australia, France, Germany, UK, Canada, US, Australia, major economies of the world, Brazil, including Brazil and South America. And every survey, India has come out at the top because our entire practices still are compared to other economies, even compared to Brazil and China, Mm -hmm. our carbon footprint remains at the lowest level. The reason is our habits are still not towards consuming a lot of stuff. I'll give you some examples. For example, our food. Mm -hmm. You know, even if somebody, some people are consuming some portions of meat in their diet, even our meat-eating people are not eating beef at a, such a huge level as what is happening in European countries or in the US or in Canada. Even meat-eating people are mostly eating chicken, maybe not three times a day, I would think, right? Yeah. Or maybe some mutton, but again, not three times a day. So because of our food habits, large portion of our diet is vegetarian food, lentils, rice, dal, roti, sabzi, maybe vegetables, fruits, and so on. Mm-hmm. Because of our food practices, our Footprint remains at one of the lowest levels. Then our living style—we still don't have even in our houses 24/7 hot water. We don't have central air conditioning unit installed in all our offices, in all our homes. If we have a family of four people, we still don't have four cars or two cars.
0: Absolutely. So
1: our, our living style, our driving style, our commuting style is, and our houses—our houses size are still not huge bungalows because of all these uh, habits and limitations of living in India. Because of so many people, 1.4 million people, in such a less space. Is. Naturally, we are forced to live in a very sustainable lifestyle. Unlike mm-hmm. China, where it's such huge space, or unlike in European or American diets, which are all based on red meat. Yeah. Red meat, which is not just extremely dangerous and threatening and devastating for the planet, it is also equally harmful mm-hmm. for our own health. Yeah. If we can just stick to these habits, we will continue to do our part. Per capita, carbon footprint will continue to be one of the lowest in India. Now, that should not be an excuse to give us any license to become reckless and keep mm-hmm. throwing plastic everywhere. Thankfully, I hope many states have already introduced this one-time usage of plastic is completely banned. So all of these things should really become a movement. I just was reading last week, India has met its COP26 target nine years ahead of time.
0: Yeah, for solar and 40% India.
1: of renewable energy, 40% of our energy is coming from non-fossil fuel sources. We are nine years ahead in COP26 target. So if we keep doing these things, this entire day today, Abhir, I spent calling my friends and relatives in Mumbai area now I know a solar panel vendor mm-hmm. who is promising that he can install solar panels in all homes, offices, villages, schools, colleges at mm-hmm. lower cost than for fossil fuel-based energy yeah. that they're using. So it's up to us, people like you and me, to connect these solar panel vendors with actual consumers, which our friends, relatives, because Absolutely. fire fire should become wildfire.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, well, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head because it's up to everyone to individually sort of take up a cause that they feel passionately for and then to spread that message. But to conclude, I think, Jen I want to ask you, at least in my opinion, I don't think the world has seen a religious leader like Pope Francis, who is so open towards so many different things. And one of those messagings being around climate change and climate action How do you think we take this message to the next level? Because as I was mentioning just a few minutes ago, I think you've identified that segment of society which brings together religion where people have faith, where they will listen to their religious leaders. So how do we channel this in the right direction? How do we make this not just, say, certain communities in India or, say, Pope Francis, Mm -hmm. but how do we make this an interfaith international green faith movement. By doing
1: these things, what we're doing now, I think Mm. more and more discussions, more and more sharing the ideas, See, many of my friends I was calling this morning they didn't even know that solar panels have become so cheap now in India. Yeah. And everybody has this stereotype that oh, solar panel is very expensive.
0: expensive. Yeah.
1: I think it's up to us to keep spreading the awareness that it is great to be green cost-effective to be green and you feel so good the morally right thing you're doing for the planet for your budget for everybody you're doing good thing if you switch to solar panels if you keep reducing your meat consumption it's good for everybody your own health and yeah. for planet's health. So it's yeah. up to us to keep spreading the awareness and people like you will be the leader for the future I wish there are a thousand more of these in every college. And so in my college in Flame University, we have an environmental club. Mm-hmm. And I've been sharing these ideas with them also. So that club is luckily very active. So they are reaching out to the upper management and they're trying to press the issue that let's go completely green. Mm-hmm. At Flame, we have already switched to 10% solar energy, non fossil oh,
0: That's great. Yeah. So now they're
1: trying to tell them that let's go for 100%. Yeah. Now there are some certain limitations in terms of how much solid solar panels can be installed and whatnot. But these are the people like you and this environmental club at Flame that we all have to keep doing these two things together. You know, Everybody's a student. This is such a new thing. Whatever I learn, I share with students. Students learn. They share share with upper management. And together, if we can continue to join our hands, then we can change the world for the better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the key takeaway for this, that we are all in this fight together. And we need to learn from each other and be inspired by each other. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Jen. As for our listeners, do follow our Instagram at the rate Candid Climate Conversations to stay updated with what's happening on the podcast. You can also find updates on the Ramphal Institute's LinkedIn and Facebook pages. That's all for now. Stay safe and stay tuned to Candid Climate Conversations with Abhir. Thank Thank you.